Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. In this week's programme, I talk with China analyst and author Mark O'Neill about the lives of a group of extraordinary Irish Jesuit priests who were in Hong Kong in the run-up to the Japanese military invasion of Hong Kong in December 1941 and then during the deprivations of the occupation and then in the immediate aftermath when Hong Kong needed to recover. We'll be hearing about Father Patrick Joy, who represented the Irish community here from March 1942 onwards during the occupation. Some Irish were interned, others could choose to remain outside the camps as Ireland was a neutral country. Father Joy would negotiate payments from the Red Cross to Irish civilians here. He also travelled to Macau to set up a school for many Portuguese children who had travelled there to get out of Hong Kong. He would also be imprisoned for three months. There was Father Gerald Kennedy, a qualified doctor who had the exhausting task in 1938 of helping a Guangzhou hospital back on its feet with minimal equipment or means for anaesthesia. And Father Thomas Ryan, who helped found the Hong Kong Housing Society when tens of thousands of refugees flooded into Hong Kong in the 1930s. After the Second World War, he became acting superintendent of agriculture in Hong Kong and was responsible for reforesting the territory. It was the only time in history that a Jesuit priest held such a government post in the British Empire. I was very honoured last year. David Costello, the Irish Consul General, said he wanted a book about the Irish contribution to Hong Kong and... We didn't realise at the beginning how large it was. And we've now <laughs> reached 180,000 words, which is far too long. So we're having to revise it back a lot. But what that wordage tells us is that the Irish have been here since the beginning and their contributions to Hong Kong have been in all sectors of society. And for me, the most outstanding have been the religious, that is, the nuns and the priests, and lesser extent, the pastors, the Protestant ones also. And what we're speaking about today is World War II and a small number of Irish Jesuits, what they did in World War II. Now, between 1926 and 1970, there were 106 Irish Jesuits in Hong Kong, which is a very large number. And when it came to the Second World War, what was the position of the Irish? Well, this is a very interesting question because, of course, during World War II, the Irish Free State was neutral. It wasn't pro-Britain and it wasn't pro-Germany. Uh, now, Northern Ireland, of course, was and is part of Britain. That was on the British side. And this meant that the Irish people here in Hong Kong had the choice as to which side they would choose to belong to. So after the Japanese took over Hong Kong, they asked the Irish people here, over 300, what was their choice? And 180 of them said, we're British. Now, they would have been people who were working for the government. So they would be policemen, civil servants, teachers, but people in the government service. And they probably felt that if I choose neutrality, Will I keep my job after the war? Will I be able to go on working in the government service? So I would suspect for them the main calculation was to preserve their position. 
So if you declared that you were British, you were then, of course, interned. So all of those people were put in the internment camps in Stanley. Now, the other Irish people, including all the religious, they chose to be Irish citizens, which meant that they were not interned and they could carry on their normal life. But in the event, the ones who chose British probably made the better choice because within the camp they had at least the minimum food supply. But if you were outside the camp, you were not guaranteed any food supply and you were always suspect by the Japanese side because, of course, they looked at you, they saw a Caucasian face, they couldn't differentiate easily between the French and the Italians and the Irish. So they were suspect. So especially people like the Jesuits because these were very intelligent people, very prominent. They were active in many projects in Hong Kong, and they were especially subject to suspicion by the Japanese. So their life was very uncomfortable, and as we know in Hong Kong, in the last 18 months of the war, the food situation became critical. March 1944, the rice rationing stopped. So you had to depend on yourself for your food supply. Yeah, I mean, many people starved to death here. Uh, there was also cannibalism here due to just complete desperation. So, yes, the food situation was dire. And uh, for those that were in Hong Kong, and as you, as you say, in a sort of civilian capacity. So if we go back to the Battle of Hong Kong, of course, takes place from December the 8th, 1941, until December the 25th, with Hong Kong surrendering then. You then have the Japanese military occupation from that time on until August 1945. So what's the Irish Jesuit role? Well, it's a very important one because the Jesuit superior at the time was called Father Patrick Joy, and he was chosen by the Irish community to be their leader in Hong Kong. So one of the most important things he did was to negotiate with the Japanese authorities and they were allowed to accept a thousand pounds a month from the Irish Red Cross, which they gave to secular Irish people here, and 500 pounds a month from the Irish Red Cross, which they gave to the Jesuits. And this money was critical, especially toward the end of the war, because it meant that they had at least some funds to buy food. And as much as possible, Father Joy wanted to keep the Jesuit projects going. Now, the two main projects in Hong Kong were the schools, YN schools. And in this regard, he failed because the Japanese insisted that the school could not go on teaching as before. And they did allow the YN College in Hong Kong to go on, but it, it couldn't have the curriculum as before. It couldn't teach English and it couldn't have any religious studies. So they had to teach in Chinese and also in Japanese. But what he did do was he negotiated with the governor of Macau, and the governor of Macau gave him land and a building and paid all the expenses, and he set up there a secondary school in, in Macau. Macau for the many Portuguese who had escaped from here to there, and many of these had been students of Wayan College in Hong Kong. And this college opened in January 1943, and this was a very important initiative. And it meant that these children 
in Macau were able to continue their normal education during the war. And in the evenings also, the Jesuit teachers there gave evening classes, so many other people were able to get some form of education. And the reason the governor did this was the situation in Macau was critical too. The population trebled, there was great lack of food, thousands of people lived on the streets, lived in the parks, there was starvation, there was cannibalism in some cases. So the governor was delighted to have any project which would engage people, keep them occupied, stop them roaming the streets, you know, improve the public order. So I would say that was the greatest achievement of Father Joy during World War II. But he went to Macau quite often and he met there the British consul, John Reeve. Now, because Macau was neutral in the war, Reeve was able to remain there and keep the consulate open. But of course, his consulate was under extreme surveillance by the Japanese. So the Japanese saw Father Joy go in and have contacts with Reeve and, of course, became very suspicious. And one of Reeve's missions was to assist people to escape from Hong Kong through the Japanese lines and then reach free China. And it's because of this that in the summer of 1943, Father Joy was arrested with another Jesuit and another Irishman called Thomas Monaghan. They were arrested by the Japanese police and they were detained for nearly three months. And for the three of them, this was extreme ordeal. Um, can I quote you how Father Joy described this period? The questionings and tortures went on all day and we could hear the screams of the tortured and then see them after their terrible experience. Father Casey and I, those are the two of them who were arrested, were not tortured. He faced eight sessions of questioning. The mental torture of the questioning was great, not that we had done anything wrong, but it was so easy to say an unguarded word that might get one's or some other person's head off. We were constantly being watched. The simplest actions or words could be the object of suspicion. So Father Joy was traumatized by this experience. However, he had outside another Jesuit called Father Edward Burke, who was the head of the Hawaiian school in this time. And Father Burke was a very smart fellow. So Father Burke went to the Japanese authorities and said, look, you've arrested these two very prominent Jesuits. There have been questions from the Irish government to the Japanese ambassador in Dublin about them. What, what is their condition? What have they done wrong? And the public opinion in, in Ireland is very uh, strong on this issue. And if you don't release them, the Irish government may choose to drop its neutrality and join the British side. Now, I think this is not historically accurate, <laughs> but, but it was a very smart thing for him to say because, of course, that was uh, extremely alarming to the Japanese government. And even more, Father Burke persuaded them to allow him to go into the detention center every Sunday and give a communion to the two Jesuits for two months every Sunday, which I think is an extraordinary concession by the Japanese side. So finally, after 11 weeks, the two of them were released from detention without any charges against them. But the third man who was taken in with them called Thomas Monaghan, who was a Canadian of Irish origin, he was not released. 
And the reason for this was he had been an active member of the British Army Aid Group, which helped to enable people to escape from Hong Kong to free China. So he was kept and he was executed on October 29th, 1943. So yes, Thomas Monaghan was executed on Stanley Beach along with 32 other prisoners. So Father Joy and Father Casey, once they're released, what happens to them? Now, Father Joy, he's been through this traumatic experience. And, and I think it's interesting these days that, that sometimes I think that the Second World War, I've seen much more about what, how nervous tension, how these kinds of traumatic experiences affect people. More people talking about PTSD as a result of the Second World War. I found before that it's all been in tales of, you know, that people were just expected to cope after the war, you know, a case of having to, sure. It would have been a highly traumatic time for them. And also, after they're released, they're still going back into a situation where people are starving. Nothing's changed other than that they're free again. Yes, uh, Father Burke, the one who lobbied on their behalf, he wrote about Father Joy. He said he was much shaken and really never till peace came was he without some extra nervous tension. Mm -hmm. So I think exactly as you said, I think he's released from prison, he's a free man again, but his experience is so traumatic and the conditions that he's living in outside are worsening and he's the head of the Irish community here, so his job is to try to look after children, women, elderly people, provide for them shelter, provide for them food, try to prevent them being arrested or detained or harassed by the Japanese side. Extremely difficult job for him for the rest of the war. So they've been released. This is in 1943. For the rest of the war, as you say, Father Joy had already set up this school in Macau. What was their work, would you say, over the next couple of years? His work would be looking after the Irish people here and the parishioners. So none of the Jesuits died in the war, which is quite remarkable, either as a result of an attack or starvation or disease. And they lost an average of three stone. Three stone which is a large... A large so, yes, about around 21 kilos. 21 kilos, yes. It's, it's a large amount. And from March 44, the food situation deteriorated. So the situation became more difficult for the Jesuits and for everybody. So at that time, those in the camps, in a sense, were more fortunate because they had at least a minimum of food rations and they had, can I say, safety. I mean, the life there was extremely difficult and boring, but at least they had a minimum of safety. So the Irish people who were in the internment camps, they perhaps were more fortunate in this latter period. Now, as you say, in March 1944, rice rationing was discontinued. So had there been rice rationing before? How did that work? Well, you were given a rice coupon, so this entitled you to buy a certain amount of rice. Now, the Japanese had always encouraged people to leave Hong Kong, so many foreigners had escaped to Macau. If they could, they escaped to Guangdong and escaped to Free China. Many Chinese people had escaped too because the Japanese knew there would be these shortages. But by 44, the shortages had become so severe they couldn't even provide this minimum supply. So Father Joy and his colleagues, they would then have to try to find a way to feed people. I assume they had to go to the black market and, and pay. 
to buy what limited food was available. Yeah, difficult times. But obviously, you know, I think that their work outside the camp, as you say, was so useful and brave. So we've been talking about Father Joy and his work and also Father Casey. What about some of the other Jesuit priests at this time? We must speak of a, a Jesuit called Father Gerald Kennedy. Now, Father Kennedy was born in 1889. He qualified as a doctor, medical doctor, and only then did he decide to become a Jesuit. So when he was ordained as a Jesuit in 1928, he was already 39. Because, as you know, the Jesuit training is longer than that for other priests. So he's trained as a doctor, and then he's trained as a Jesuit. And he comes here in 1929, and he works at the St. Paul's Hospital. And this was the first Western hospital here. It was built by the Sisters of St. Paul de Chartres, a French missionary order. And he started to work there as a doctor. So in 1937, the Japanese start their all-out war on China. And in October 1938, they bomb Guangzhou and then take it over. And the destruction in Guangzhou is extreme. And the Anglican Bishop of Hong Kong and the Catholic leaders here in Hong Kong, they decide they must offer help to the people of Guangzhou. So the Japanese agree for a ship to go there and to provide medical aid. So Father Kennedy is put in charge of this operation. And what year is this? This is October 1938. So they arrive in Guangzhou and Father Kennedy goes to this hospital called Fongping, which is a missionary hospital. Now the conditions in the hospital are extremely poor. Most of the staff have left, most of the doctors have left. They lack many of the supplies you need to, to run a proper hospital. He finds four nuns working there and hundreds of patients. So Father Kennedy takes over as the head of this hospital. And the humanitarian needs, of course, are extreme because we've just had a bombings, we've just had a, a war. So there are many people with severe injuries. And he has to start running this hospital almost from, from nothing. So he has to recruit staff. And, of course, he can't run it like you can run a hospital today um, because everything is in short supply. So... He has to carry out many operations without all the necessary equipment, all the necessary anesthesia. He himself has to clean the floors. He has to carry the bodies of the dead people because there aren't people available to do this. And he has a great inspiring effect on the staff. And under his guidance, the hospital is able to, to be revived. And of course, it never can reach proper level of before but it becomes a functioning hospital and they manage to save the lives of many people. So he stays there for a total of six, six months and I think this is a very extraordinary episode. I mean, a very Extra Yes, as you say, and, and such courage and such hard work ethic. I mean, you're faced, as you say, as a doctor with this situation. I think the fact that he could also carry out operations, as you say, with not the right equipment, not the correct anaesthesia, if anything, shows also his abilities as a medical man, but at the same time, what you're describing to me uh, is utterly exhausting, both physically and psychologically, to have to have a situation where you haven't got any of the normal equipment or facilities that you would be used to working with. So, yeah, very special man. So he was working with his team, as you say, this would have been in Guangzhou. So he stays there for how long? So, yeah, he stays there for six months. 
And remember, of course, this is not what he was sort of designated for. I mean, his, his mission was supposed to work in Hong Kong. So he evidently stayed there long enough to bring the hospital back to a proper functioning unit and hire more staff and so on. So after six months, he comes back to Hong Kong and he goes to work at the Yan College, which is the Jesuit College. And where was that based? Well, it's still in the same place. It's in Wan Chai. Yeah, it's the same. And, of course, there's a second Yan College also in Kowloon, which was built later. So he's the prefect of health at this college. And then in December 41, just before the Japanese invade, he's put in charge of St. Teresa Hospital. Now, this is the sister hospital of the St. Paul's Hospital. This is a, another hospital built by the St. Paul's Sisters, and that's in Kowloon. So he was put in charge of this St. Teresa's Hospital. Now, along with the other religious he chose to be Irish during the war and not British, which meant that he wasn't put in internment. So he was, again, a heroic figure for the next three and a half years. So he worked at the St. Teresa Hospital. He also worked in the St. Paul's Hospital. And while conditions were a little better than that in the Guangzhou Hospital, they were still extremely difficult. There was a shortage of staff. There was a shortage of materials that you need. The need is absolutely enormous because you have refugees there. You have people who have been injured uh, during the war. You have a shortage of food and all supplies in the cities. So there are many diseases that result from that. So he's working around the clock greatly overworked, not enough staff. And the compound in St. Paul's is a refugee centre as well as a hospital. So we have 600 patients in the hospital, but we also have 600 refugees who are just living in this large compound that they had. And at the same time, of course, he's under suspicion by the Japanese because he's legally, he's Irish, he has the right not to be detained, but of course they're very suspicious of what he's doing. Is he treating Allied prisoners? Is he helping, helping them to escape? So he's not only under great physical pressure from his work, but he's also under great mental pressure as well. And the Japanese police would be very suspicious of him as of all the other Jesuits. When did you say he was born? So he was born in 1889. Yes, so he's in his 50s now. He's not a young man. And on April the 4th, 1945, the American bombers bomb this St. Paul's compound. It was a mistake. And there are eight buildings in the compound, and they bomb all of the buildings except the hospital. So eight of the buildings are hit. Eight sisters are killed in the bombing. A lot of other people are killed and injured. Father Kennedy himself was not hit by the bombs. But that's just uh, another terrible disaster to happen whilst you're facing all these disasters here in Hong Kong to be bombed by your own side. So he continued this pace of work until the end of the war. The only relief would be occasional visits to Macau because, again, as an Irish citizen, he would have the right to leave Hong Kong and, and go somewhere else. And, of course, Macau was neutral, so the food supply there would be a little bit better and there were Jesuits there who could receive him, look after him. So he could have some rest and respite there and relax a little bit. And Father Kennedy died on February the 6th, 1949 in Australia. So he's only 60 when he dies, actually. So he's only 60. Yeah. So I can't say this 100% fact, but 
I would say that anyone who has been through the experience he has from 38 to 45 to be a frontline medical doctor dealing with the workload that he had, I, I would say he, he must have been completely worn out, exhausted by this ordeal in the war. And I suspect that's why he died at, at this young age. In terms of how they are remembered now, I mean, you're just leafing through a book there, Mark. I mean, has their contribution been recorded? Oh, yes. In fact, what we're looking at now is exactly a book in English and Chinese about the contribution of the Irish Jesuits here. And there were many Irish religious here, and they worked in education, they worked in social welfare, helping the elderly uh, in many different sectors. But I would say the Jesuits were the most outstanding because these are people of many talents. So while the majority would have been teaching in the Wayan colleges, that was their main stay of work, they were involved in many different sectors. One of the founders of Amnesty International here was a Jesuit. The first representative of the Hong Kong workers in LegCo was an Irish Jesuit. He set up one of the first trade unions here. The man who set up the first conservation movement in Hong Kong, he was a Jesuit. Jesuits tend to be a little bit troublemakers, don't they? Yes, well, they have a, a very long training, longer than other people. So not only do they learn theology and all the religious topics, but many of them have another skill as well. So they're skilled at music, skilled at engineering, architecture. Yeah, and yeah, they're certainly troublemakers. And uh, we know in Africa and South America, some of them have been very active in liberation theology and have become, <laughs> become a headache for the church hierarchy, which is often on the other side of the balance. So I think they take a very broad view of what the mission is. And I think the superiors believe that their members are very talented. So we should let them use their talents in the fields that they have. So in this context, I'd like to speak about another Irish Jesuit who spent his whole life in Hong Kong called Father Thomas Ryan. And he was quite an extraordinary individual. He came here in 1922 at the age of 43. He starts as a teacher of English at Wyan College. He edits a Catholic magazine, and he becomes very concerned about the lack of social welfare here. So in 1938, he sets up the Hong Kong Housing Society with the Anglican Bishop of the time. And th this is the, the start of what we now have, the very extensive low-cost housing program in Hong Kong. So uh, that's how it began. After the fall of Guangzhou to Japan in October 1938, 50,000 refugees poured into Hong Kong from Guangdong. And Father Ryan, and again the Anglican Bishop, they took it upon themselves to provide food and shelter for these refugees. And he mobilized the students from Huayan, the secondary students, who, remember, would be among the privileged of Hong Kong. I mean, they're receiving an excellent education. Many of them come from well-off families and he organized them to go and assist the refugees. Now, when Japan takes over Hong Kong, Father Ryan is able to escape. But remember, if you're an Irish citizen, then you're allowed to leave, I mean, because you're not an enemy combatant. He goes to Guilin, then he goes to Chongqing, which is the, the nationalist capital, and he works there as a writer and a broadcaster. And in Chongqing, he meets the man who would become the colonial secretary here after the war. And this man very much likes Father Ryan and regards him as a very um, 
competent individual. After the end of the war, the British returned to Hong Kong, set up the colonial government again, and Father Ryan is asked to become the Secretary of Agriculture. Now, this is not a field in which he has any knowledge or competence. So why was he asked? Well, evidently he's an extremely capable, hard-working individual, and the situation of Hong Kong uh, after the war is extremely serious because most of the trees have been cut down for use as fuel or in, in the war effort. So his job is to reforest Hong Kong. So Father Ryan throws himself into this uh, job. He learns as much as he can about it. He's given quite a big budget, so he hires a large staff to do this for him. And his mission is to reforest all the public gardens, the gardens of all the public buildings, and to reforest the new territories. So what he does is he buys from Australia large numbers of plants and seeds, and he brings them to Hong Kong and he plants them all over Hong Kong, especially next to the main roads. He also started a pig breeding station, uh, experimental farms, and then he set up in 1946 a wholesale vegetable marketing association to try to get better prices for the vegetable farmers. He also sets up fishing cooperatives. Now, in the whole history of the British Empire, this is the only time where a Jesuit priest has been given a senior chief bureau role. So that is how well he was regarded. My thanks to China analyst and author Mark O'Neill, talking there on the service to Hong Kong of some extraordinary men, all part of the Irish Jesuit community here. Mark is currently writing a book on the history of the Irish community in Hong Kong. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>